Once again, we look at this particular letter in the book of Revelation. And I wanted to zero in today on the promise here that he says at the bottom of page 1916, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I want to think about that with you, not only today, but for a few weeks to come. And so I have something that I've written that was distributed to you. And if you turn to the very last page of it, page five, I want you to notice something that's said here. Underneath the chart. And that is at the last three paragraphs. Gabriel does not tell Daniel when the last half of the week ends. But it is interesting to observe that both Daniel and Revelation refer to a period of time that adds up to one half of seven years. It is sometimes referred to as 42 months. We'll look at those scriptures in a moment. Or 1260 days. And rather cryptically as a time, times, and half a time. The period of time seems to stretch from Christ's ascension to his second coming. Revelation 12, 5, 14, 14, but has particular focus on the time of the manifestation of the Antichrist, the terrible time of persecution before the second coming of Christ. Now I'm going to say something very controversial. So what's new? <laughs> there are two doctrines that are popular amongst Bible-believing Christians today. The first one is... Once saved, always saved, regardless of how you live. Now that sounds like the truth, doesn't it? Because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if we're living in sin, and we are completely oblivious to every overture calling us to repentance and faith, we should question whether we've ever been saved at all. In other words, what I'm talking about is modern evangelism where people walk an aisle, pray a prayer, and then write their names in a book, and they're told, now don't ever doubt that you're a Christian because you made this decision for Christ. If we read places like 1 John, we see that such things are utterly false. If we're saved and we know it, then our life will surely show it. A Christian can fall into sin. Every Christian falls into sin sooner or later. And in fact, we fall into sin far more often than we may recognize. But a Christian cannot go on, on and on and on, day in and day out, living in sin. It's interesting to me that just this past week in one of my English Bible readings, I read the story of David and Bathsheba. David hardened his heart. David committed a dreadful sin. He seduced another man's wife, and he got her pregnant. And then when she realized she was pregnant, and David then knew, he sent for her husband to be brought to him. And he tried to get him to go home so that the child would be able to be labeled his own child. But he refused. In his loyalty to the king and to the soldiers, he slept outside the palace. And then the king... Remembering something that Ogden Nash said once, candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. 
he got Uriah the Hittite drunk. And he thought, surely. But no, Uriah didn't. And so David did something that leaders of countries in their callousness sometimes do. And that is they can become calloused about human life. Think about it for a moment. The first time as a military officer you write a letter to a mother because her son has been killed in battle, it tears you apart. But by the 12th or 20th letter that you write, you become callous to it. That's just the way that human nature is. And that's how David is. He writes to Joab, who is his nephew, and tells him what to do. I want you to put Uriah the Hittite into the front of the hottest battle and then withdraw from him. And that's exactly what happened. And then when Joab sends word back to King David that Uriah the Hittite has been killed, David responds back with this message. The sword devours one one day and another one the next. Don't let it bother you. I wonder how many presidents of the United States, I wonder how many general officers in writing letters and communicating become so calloused that they no longer care about human beings. Wow. Something to ponder. Now David hardened his heart. Bathsheba comes to live with him after she goes through the appropriate period of mourning. And she gives birth to this baby. And David thinks, man, I sure am glad that I escaped that. Because you know that under the law of God, the penalty for adultery is a capital crime. It's, it's death. It's death. David should have been executed for doing this. But he's king. You know, there was a Presbyterian preacher by the name of Samuel Rutherford who wrote a book, Lex Rex. That means the law is king. In other words... As Christians, we don't believe that absolute power is ever given to any political authority. But that's how David was living. As if he had absolute authority and he hardened his heart. And one day, the prophet Nathan came to see King David. And he told him a story. And the story was so gut-wrenching, he told David a story that would really connect emotionally with David. Because David had been a shepherd boy. And David obviously had had a pet lamb. So he tells the story about a man who had a pet lamb, who slept in his bosom, who drank from his cup, who was like a daughter to him. And David is very moved. He immediately has gotten drawn into Nathan's tale. And he said, there was this rich guy. And rather than taking one of his own animals when he had people come to see him, he went and stole the poor man's lamb and killed it and ate it and served it to him. And David said, in a typical example of a conscience that isn't working right, because when your conscience isn't working right, it sends you all kinds of wrong signals. And he, and he said, such a man is worthy of death. Well, that's not true, of course. Such a man was not worthy of death. He was worthy of being punished severely and fined and made to restore fourfold what he had done, but he wasn't worthy of death. And then... 
in a passage of Scripture that tells us what a faithful preacher has to do. Nathan pointed that finger at him and he said, Thou art the man. Wow. Now, the evidence that David was a born-again man is his response. Had David not been a born-again man, he would have been like many of his descendants who ruled over the kingdom of Judah and, of course, over Israel to the north. He would have had him executed. Instead, David's heart broke him. The test of whether I'm a Christian or not is that when the Word of God comes home to me and I have that bony finger of the prophet pointing to me and saying, Thou art the man, do I repent or do I harden my heart further? If I harden my heart further, I need to think very seriously if that decision I supposedly made for Christ was a real decision for Christ or not. The only past event that I can base my present assurance of salvation on is the death of Jesus some 2,000 years ago. It can never be my supposed decision for Christ at such and such a date if it doesn't correspond to present reality. Now that's the first doctrine that I want to say is a doctrine that has damning effects. What do I mean by that? I mean by that it means that people can sit in church or in an evangelistic meeting or watching an evangelistic broadcast or reading their Bibles and they experience conviction and they say, I don't have to worry about that. I made that decision years ago. If that's your attitude and you persist in it, you are on your way to hell. I want to tell you a second doctrine that is extremely popular amongst evangelical Christians, particularly in our country. And that is the doctrine of a seven-year period of tribulation out of which Christians will have been rescued before it ever starts. Now, you probably have heard of that. In fact, it was never known in church history until the late 1800s when someone in a Presbyterian church in London had a message in tongues about a special second coming of Christ before the Great Tribulation and then another one after the Great Tribulation. Sounds so common that we think anybody that challenges it must not know his Bible. I used to believe in such a thing until I studied the Bible. And I realized that the idea of a seven-year period of tribulation is rooted in a misunderstanding of the book of Daniel that totally removes Jesus out of Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. Now, I'm not going to get into all that today. That's why I wrote this for you and would encourage you to read it and study it. But the point I want to make is this. The Bible clearly speaks that Christians will go through terrible trials and suffering in this world. How in the world do American Christians think that they are so special that they're exempt from the kinds of monstrosities that are going on in Afghanistan right now where 14-year-old girls are taken off and raped? Let me tell you what's going on in Afghanistan today is the practice of original, pure Islam as taught and practiced by Muhammad himself. How can I say that? 
The focus of my doctorate was studying Islam with a view to being able to communicate the Christian gospel to Muslims. Fundamentalist Islam, quote unquote, I love how words are bandered about. Fundamentalist Islam is the Islam as taught and practiced by Muhammad. Muhammad thought nothing of killing people if they wouldn't bow down and serve him and become his slaves. He thought nothing of killing them and then taking their wives and little children as slaves and oftentimes raping a woman after he just killed his, that woman's husband. Did you know that about Muhammad? We only get the sanitized version. I think of, of one of the stupidest men to be president. The man that launched all of this in Afghanistan. And he said, he said Islam is a religion of peace. Well, it does sound like Salam, but so does Salami. Islam is a political movement with a religious foundation that is based on a distortion particularly of the books of Joshua in terms of conquest. That's what it is. Islam is a political movement. How can I say that? Because Christians think in terms of the birth of Jesus as the beginning of Christianity. Now we early Christians got the date wrong, but we think in terms of BC before Christ or AD in the year of the Lord or the modern nomenclature, which is designed to be politically inoffensive, BCE versus CE, before the common era or the common era. I like to use that and say before the Christian era and in the Christian era. What is the date for the founding of Islam? Is it the birth of Muhammad? Is it his revelation that he got from demons in the mountains outside of Mecca? Is it when he began to preach against idolatry in the city of Mecca? No. It's when he was invited to leave Mecca and come to Medina, which was renamed Medina, the city of the prophet, to be their political leader. If nothing else, listen, dear ones, if nothing else, that tells you that Islam is not so much a religion as a political movement with a religious foundation. That's what it is. And all of your politicians and pundits and so-called experts are either ignorant or they're lying to you. You will never change the heart of a Muslim with a gun. Because Muhammad taught that if you die defending the Quran, defending him, defending Islam, you go straight to heaven. When I used to teach Bible in our church's uh, school, the high school students, for the senior class, I would bring in from time to time the Muslim Imam and let them quiz him. And they did. And so they asked him, how can we know we're going to heaven? And he said, well, you cannot. You cannot know that. No one can know that. In Christianity, you can't know that. That's because he didn't understand real Christianity. In Christianity, you can't know that. So after it was over, and before as well, I told them, there is a way to know. There's only one way to know you're going to heaven as a Muslim. It's to die in the cause of Islam, Muhammad, 
defending them. That's how you can know you're going to heaven. So you understand something. Muslims are very happy to die. Because it's a sure ticket to heaven. A sure ticket. It's a guarantee to heaven. Now listen. You need to understand that what's going on in Afghanistan is what's been going on from time immemorial. This is the ancient pagan way. And Islam is simply a form of paganism that was propagated by a man who was lazy. He ended up marrying a widow who was extremely wealthy so he could enjoy a life of ease. He had much misinformation and he set about to spread Islam. Do you know why Islam was phenomenally successful in the lifetime of Muhammad and then within 100 years of the death of Muhammad it was finally stopped in France as it spread all the way throughout the Middle East across North Africa across the Straits of Gibraltar into Europe. Do you know why it was successful? Because here's the deal. You submit and become a demi paying a special tax and having no real privileges or we will kill you, we will take your wife, your daughters, your sons, make them slaves and we will rape whom we want to rape. And we get to keep 80% of what we take as long as we give a double tithe to the mosque. Give 20% tithes on what you steal from others and you get to keep the rest. That's why Islam is such an appealing religion to the natural man. Now I'm going to ask you a simple question. Why do we believe that we living here in Texarkana or in the United States are exempt from the kinds of wicked, terrible, horrible things that are being done right now in Afghanistan? Why do you think you're exempt from that? Where is a promise in the Word of God that you're exempt from that? Where? Where is there anywhere in Scripture that teaches there is a seven-year period of tribulation? I'll write you a check for $100 if you can show that to me from the Bible. Where does it come from? It comes from removing the Lord Jesus Christ out of the prophecy of Daniel's 70th week taking him totally out of it. It is a Christless reading of the book of Daniel. What do you find in the book of Revelation? Well, let's look at a couple of them for a moment. Let's go there and and look at the period of 42 months. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 2. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 2. And what we're told there, as we turn there, is this. He said, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample it, trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1260 days. See how they're referred to again and again? 42 months, 1260 days, a time, times, and half a time. The book of Revelation speaks of a three and a half year period of time. But the thing you've got to understand is this has nothing to do with time as we know it. It has to do rather with the symbolism of the Jubilee. If you read the paper that I wrote, you'll see that's very clearly what's in view. The book of Revelation then speaks about this, and this is important for us to hold in our minds. The book of Revelation speaks about a time of suffering 
that Christians will go through in this life. For some it will be very intense. For some it will be like in Afghanistan where a group of leaders in Afghanistan, Christian leaders, went and registered with the government that they were Christians. Why did they do that this summer? Why did they do that? Because if you are a Christian, then your children and grandchildren can be Christians. But if you're a Muslim and you convert, you can be killed. See, that's Sharia law. Sharia law says, whatever the father's religion, the children are protected. Sharia law. That's why the President of the United States a couple of terms ago, his father was a Muslim. Whatever may be true of his heart, I don't know. I'm not a judge of men's hearts. But I can say that in the eyes of the Muslim world, that particular president is a Muslim. You need to understand that. Muslim father, you're a Muslim automatically by virtue of who your father is. Why did these men go and register with the government in Afghanistan that they were Christians? It was a protection for their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren that they would not be committing apostasy, which is a death penalty offense in Islam. That's bold, isn't it? And you can't share Christ with your neighbor? That's bold, isn't it? And you hesitate to come to church because there's a ball game going on? That's bold, isn't it? And you're worried about getting fired from your job? I look at the world around us, the Christian world, and places like Afghanistan, and I say, those men are true and authentic Christians. But what may be said of the American church today, I don't know. But most Americans believe we'll be exempt from that kind of persecution. But the book of Revelation never says that. What are we exempt from? And I'm going to close with this point. And then I want us to take a season for prayer before I have the final hymn and the benediction. What you find yourself exempt from in the book of Revelation in terms of terrible times is the final outpouring of God's wrath on the pagan world. Christians are exempt from that. Christians appear to be raptured out of that. See, just before God says enough to the pagan world in the book of Revelation, you see it over and over again in all the visions, just before He does it, He rescues believers. But believers do live to see the man of sin, do live to see the Antichrist, and do live to see the greatest revival in the history of Christianity because revival and persecution go hand in hand together. People wonder, what's God doing in Afghanistan? All of this was orchestrated by God. Why? Because God ordains times and seasons, the boundaries of nations, so that men and women and boys and girls would seek Him. Why should anybody seek God in modern America? We have such prosperity that the world has never seen. World War II, having been finished, American policy began to expand the ability to go into debt. American prosperity is funded by, founded on, and secured by massive debt. That's why people can have a $100 bass boat uh, situation behind their new pickup truck. 
I bumped into a guy today, uh, last week, filling gas up, and he said, that's my retirement boat. Okay. That's very different than the world of my grandparents who were born, one of them, in 1866. The world of my grandparents was a world where people scrimped and saved and worked hard and, and barely had enough to get by on. Even if they were somewhat well off, they struggled financially. But the world since World War II, fueled by debt, massive debt, has known prosperity, the likes of which for ordinary people in the history of the world is utterly unknown. Why should people who have enormous amount of leisure time, why should people who have time to do whatever they want to do, to scratch every itch they have, why should people like that seek God? I'll tell you why. Because soon the things that we are experiencing will come to an end. Soon there will be persecution. Soon we in America may indeed face the kinds of things that they're facing in Afghanistan today. Make no mistake about it. The greatest enemy of this country isn't China. It's Islam. Islam, according to St. John of Damascus, is a Christian heresy. It's the greatest threat we face because they have lots of shekels. What do you do? Christians are going to experience suffering and yet in the middle of the suffering, this is the great thing we have to understand. Revival and persecution go hand in hand together. I believe you're going to see a revival in Afghanistan from those who live that may indeed convert that dreadful land But then there comes a point where God says to this pagan world that delights to shed the blood of his people, he's going to take his people out of it just before he pours out cataclysmic, terrible, enraging fire. And the world that we know is consumed in a fireball. Christians will escape that. That hour of trial that is in many places in the world already coming. But that final outpouring of wrath, as you look at the book of Revelation, Christians escape it. Because that wrath is only for people who will never know God and who have nothing but contempt for him. Where is it with you? Will you join me for a few minutes at least and pray and consider perhaps missing a meal this week? on behalf of the three things that our denominational leadership has asked us to pray about. The terrible fires in California. The return of all of the nonsense that we went through with the first incarnation of COVID. And the situation in the Middle East and in Central Asia uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan because they're really one people there on that on that eastern edge of Pakistan and western edge of Afghanistan it's really one group of people the Pashtuns may we pray Lord would you break our hearts we love to go out of church feeling good about ourselves and the world we're in and optimistic about the future and Lord I do have optimism Because our God reigns. Because none of this caught you by surprise, even though it caught our president utterly by surprise, we think. 
Lord, we do pray for Christian people in Afghanistan. We are thankful for the boldness of those who registered, even though that means their deaths, because that protects their children and grandchildren from a death penalty offense of converting from Islam to something else. Lord, may we enjoy courage and boldness like that. Lord, we remember, not with callousness, the saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the saints. Lord, and that you are working your purpose out in history, that people would seek you. And we do pray for relief from the ravaging fires that are doing such damage on our West Coast. And Lord, we do pray uh, for COVID infinity and all of the things that wicked people do exploiting this. Lord, protect us. Lord, protect your visible church. Protect our ability to gather without fear. But Lord, finally, Lord, we pray in all these things, we would know that we know that we know you for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Several of you pray and I'll close.